I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth, verse 1. After those things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul leaves Athens and he arrives in Corinth in this passage. There he hitches up with Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers like himself, and he stays in Corinth for about a year and a half. During the reign of Emperor Claudius, the Jews had been asked to leave Rome, and that's how this couple happened to settle in Corinth. Silas and Timothy rejoined Paul in verse 5. Paul had left them in Berea prior to going to Athens back in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. There was apparently a shift in Paul's preaching to these Jewish Corinthians after Silas and Timothy arrived, when you look closely at verses 4 and 5, after their arrival, Paul put the pieces together that he had apparently been laying down in the weeks prior to their arrival by declaring that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Paul continued to preach in the synagogue every Sabbath, resulting in the salvation of many, including the ruler of the synagogue, a guy named Crispus. You may recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, that Paul refers to Crispus as one who was baptized by Paul himself there in Corinth. Toward the end of his stay in Corinth, the Jewish leaders attempted to take Paul to Roman court for trial. But when Gallio, the proconsul of the province, realized that this was a dispute over the application of Jewish doctrine—Christianity, by the way, was recognized by Rome as a sect of Judaism— 
When he realized that, he dismissed the case, saying that it was no concern of his. But wait, there's more. When the Greeks saw that the case was dismissed, they took this opportunity to do a little bit of Jew bashing. They took Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue, I guess they must have held him accountable for the charges against Paul, and they beat Sosthenes. Now that's a change. Usually it's Paul that gets the beating. Well, forget about preaching in the synagogue any longer, Paul. However, though it's not conclusive that it's the same person, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 does make reference to Sosthenes, our brother. Perhaps the new ruler of the synagogue here in Corinth subsequently got saved also. Incidentally, Paul really did stir things up back at the synagogue at Corinth when in verse 6 he declared, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. This is not the first time that Paul had used this leverage on Jewish antagonists. He'd made a similar statement to the Jews back in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 verse 46 after a similar row fomented by Jewish leaders during Paul's first missionary journey. Isn't it ironic that Gentiles heard the gospel message from Paul as a result of the antagonistic rejection of the message by the Jews? And then it's back to Antioch in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 18. Verse 18, So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrae, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So as things had heated up in Corinth, it was time to head back to Syria, back in Antioch. You'll notice that Paul was finishing up on a Nazarite vow. This vow had to be completed at Jerusalem. There, the hair would be presented to God and sacrifices offered according to Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. It's important to notice once again that Christianity was regarded by the Roman Empire as a sect of Judaism during this period of time. Paul's looking for opportunities to take the gospel message to the Jews and Gentiles alike. Therefore, it was quite natural for Paul to engage in this Nazarite ritual in the process of transitioning Jewish thought from Judaism to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul summarizes his philosophy regarding this incident over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, and here's what he says there. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So we see here that Paul saw no difficulty in practicing those traditional rituals that did not compromise the gospel message. He did that in order to win Jews to Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now these verses that we just read draw to a conclusion Paul's second missionary journey. I've provided a map on the page of the written notes of BibleTrack.org to show you the route that he took for this journey. We see here that after leaving Corinth, he passed through Sincrae, sailed over to Ephesus, and then he sailed down to Jerusalem's port of Caesarea. From there, we see in verse 22, it says, And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. The phrase, gone up, is the manner in which they refer to going to Jerusalem regardless of its geographical direction. 
The phrase, salute of the church, undoubtedly refers to the church at Jerusalem. We do know from verse 21 that Paul was compelled to go to Jerusalem to complete his Nazarite vow. After completing his business in Jerusalem, it says he went down to Antioch. In Old and New Testament terminology, leaving Jerusalem to anywhere, in any direction, was always going down. From Antioch in verse 23, Paul embarks upon his third missionary journey. Incidentally, we see that Priscilla and Aquila accompanied Paul in a portion of this trip, but remained in Ephesus after Paul departed for Jerusalem. Their presence in Ephesus plays a role later on in the education of Apollos that we're going to see in the verses that are coming up. That brings us to chapter 18, beginning with verse 23. After he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23 here marks the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, which begins from Antioch in Syria. In verse 24, we find the first mention of Apollos. He was an eloquent man with learning gaps, learning gaps when it came to the Messiah. He only knew the baptism of John. Now, you recall in the preceding verses that Paul had left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus as he departed for Jerusalem. It is these two who take on the mission of educating Apollos regarding the whole story of Jesus. Apollos departed Ephesus prior to Paul's arrival. News traveled a little slowly back then. It's been over 20 years since the day of Pentecost, but Apollos only knew about the baptism of John. He didn't know anything about the day of Pentecost. As a matter of fact, since the baptism of John preceded the entire earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, he was likely ignorant of that as well. However, the trip from Jerusalem to Ephesus was over a thousand miles by land or 600 miles across the Mediterranean Sea. Word just traveled slowly about anything over that long of a distance. Paul had just left Ephesus on his way to Antioch. After Apollos was brought up to speed on Jesus and his Messiahship, including the death, burial, and resurrection, and fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy, he became a mighty champion and preached Jesus to the Jews. As a matter of fact, Apollos became a well-respected teacher in Corinth, even receives mention in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And then we find Paul in Ephesus in chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. 
And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So in Ephesus, Paul finds some other people similar to Apollos who haven't been updated in a very long time. I mean, a really long time. Like Apollos, they're only familiar with the preaching and baptizing of John the Baptist. It doesn't actually say here that they were not familiar with the ministry of Christ himself, but it is implied. After Paul preaches to them, they are baptized and afterward duplicate the miracles of the day of Pentecost. This incident, by the way, stands alone as unique. People discovered 20 years after the establishment of the church who are totally unfamiliar with those events. Look what it says in verse 10. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Paul stayed in this part of Asia Minor, and he did a thorough job of evangelizing this part of the world, which today is known as Turkey. This passage has come to be the foundation, along with others, for a second blessing doctrine that's prevalent in charismatic and Pentecostal churches. To them, the passage provides the foundation for a doctrine that the Holy Spirit is not necessarily received by a believer at salvation, but must follow as a second act of grace, accompanied by speaking in tongues. Now, in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, I deal exhaustively with that, and it's not going to be easily understood if all you're doing is just listening. So let me recommend to you that you go to this section in Acts chapter 19 on BibleTrack.org for the reading today and read the references, the links that I have to get a complete overview of the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of speaking in tongues that accompanies it. The passages that I go over here give us every occurrence of speaking in tongues uh, stated or implied in the whole New Testament. So in order to completely and properly understand the issue, you must take a look at each of these passages to understand it in its proper context. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 19, we see that the sons of Siva, well, they bite off more than they can chew. Verse 11, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had preached magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, a lot of miracles are taking place as a result of Paul's ministry here. Unfortunately, there is a thriving business today based upon verse 12, the sale by charlatans of prayer cloths designed to bring special miracles and healings to the purchasers. 
There is no doctrinal basis for this deceitful practice. However, the miracles centered around Paul's ministry, they are impressive to all around Ephesus in this passage. Subsequently, some Jewish sons of the local synagogue priests decide to trail on the coattails of Paul's success, and they try casting out demons through the power of Jesus Christ. Only one problem, though. They themselves showed no signs of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at all. So when they tried, verse 15 says that the evil spirit spoke back to them, saying, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? The man in whom the evil spirit resided leaped on them and overtook them. Note, only a fireman should attempt to put out a multi-alarm fire. You'll notice that the seven sons were left naked and wounded. you got to love this story. Big things took place in Ephesus. Verses 17 through 20 tell us that the word of God prevailed and many forsook their practices of witchcraft. But in chapter 19, beginning in verse 21, we see that Paul begins to interfere with the local economy. Verse 21, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. Having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions, and when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore... Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly." For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
In verse 22, we see that Paul stayed in Asia for a while, but he sent Timothy and Erastus on to Macedonia. Paul makes reference to the anticipated arrival of Timothy to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10. So here's the deal. Paul was preaching in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, and many folks got saved. Notice the reference to Christianity in verse 23 when it says this, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Well, of course, those who received Christ were opposed to pagan temples and idol worship. But the text would indicate that for the sake of the economy, they turned a blind eye to this idol worship. You see, this temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge, 33% larger than a football field. And it included this giant statue identified as Diana that they claimed fell from the sky. Since the tourist trade was an important part of the economy in Ephesus, these same tourists, well, they bought souvenir statues made by the local silversmiths. Now, these local silversmiths are the guys who panicked when they saw so many people around them getting saved and forsaking idol worship. The meeting started at one place. The people were worked into a frenzy. And then the meeting moved to an open-air theater which seated about 24,000 people. When Alexander stood up to represent the Jews, we get the sense that the Jews didn't want to rock the boat. The people attempt to shut him down for about two hours by crying out in unison, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! The city official finally is able to calm the crowd so Alexander can speak. If Rome hears about riots in Ephesus, who knows what might happen? He calms the people by pointing out that Paul and company were neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers, he says, of your goddess. They serve to appease the people by, in their minds, diminishing the threat to the economy, and the local official convinces the people to go home before things get out of hand. Paul then realizes that it might be time to leave, and that's what he does. This just goes to show you that people will compromise principles for money and security, as had the local Jewish population. In chapter 20, Paul heads for Macedonia and Greece, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So Paul heads through Macedonia, which is modern-day Albania, and ends up in Greece. After three months, the Jews became agitated against him once again, plotted to kill him. Paul then takes a detour rather than heading directly back to Syria because of this threat. So it's back up through Macedonia and east of Philippi, from which they sailed back towards Syria. We see that Paul had some disciples as travel companions in verse 4. You'll notice from Luke's personal pronoun, we, in verse 6, that he was traveling with Paul at this point in time. In chapter 20, beginning in verse 7, down through verse 16, Paul's preaching, and a guy falls out of a third-story window. Let's read about that, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus 
who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chaos. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So on his way back, Paul stops for seven days in Troas. After supper, he begins preaching. A guy named Eutychus, he was sitting in the window on the third floor, falls asleep and tumbles three stories. Luke declares that he was taken up dead in verse 9. Paul arrives on the scene and declares that his life is in him. This passage has provided me much comfort in my preaching ministry. I mean, if Paul couldn't keep everybody awake, how can I be expected to keep everybody awake? Paul then continues his journey. His goal was to reach Jerusalem by the festival of Pentecost. Watch it, Paul. Jerusalem may not be a very friendly environment when you get there. Paul speaks to the elders in Ephesus beginning in chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood." For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified." I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. 
Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. So here Paul's headed for Jerusalem, but before he leaves Ephesus, he calls all the elders together that he might address all of them. One church I attended many years ago referred to this as the Acts 2020, this passage as the Acts 2020 vision. Read it along with verse 21, and you'll see what they mean. That's the 2020 vision. Get it? The pun is intended, by the way. Paul's pretty sure that his trip to Jerusalem will be something less than enjoyable. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, "...except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy." and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul knows that he'll be imprisoned and afflicted in Jerusalem, but he expresses in verse 24 that it just doesn't matter. It's necessary to finish, he says, my race with joy. It's interesting to compare this with Paul's last writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. In that passage, as he writes to Timothy, he says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul's convinced that he must go to Jerusalem in order to finish his race. He tells them that they will not see him again after this day, and he warns them to avoid false teachers. And then it's off to Jerusalem. His arrival there is recorded beginning in Acts chapter 21, verse 15. Now, Paul carefully words his statement in verse 21 when he speaks of the salvation process by specifying this. He says, it's about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Many people today incorrectly teach the doctrine of repentance. The Old Testament Hebrew word generally translated repentance is nakam, often associated with sorrow. The New Testament Greek word metanoia holds no connotation of sorrow. It's literally defined as to change one's mind or attitude. That's why Paul is careful to specify here repentance toward God. You see, it's a direction. Salvation requires one to turn to God. Those teachers today who have incorrectly defined repentance as being sorry for one's sins, well, they tend to present a confusing salvation invitation. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly sorrow and repentance are two separate concepts. Paul's salvation message was simply twofold. First, repentance toward God. Secondly, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In understanding the process of salvation, it's important to recognize that the Holy Spirit incorporates both repentance and faith into one seamless process of salvation. Paul presents the salvation concept in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15-21. through 21. Read the notes I've provided there very carefully, and you'll understand that repentance and faith are not to be separated. You cannot do one without the other. The Holy Spirit provides both in the salvation experience. In other words, you cannot have one without the other. Salvation is the supernatural act of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that provides us with the complete package necessary for eternal life. Now, if you uh, have a curiosity about uh, elders, bishops, and pastors, 
then I have a rather technical ending to today's written notes of BibleTrack.org, where in that passage that I've written, I've explained that there's no functional difference in the New Testament between pastors, bishops, and elders. And so I'd encourage you to read that. In conclusion, I'll just say this. There is no distinction between a pastor, a bishop, or an elder in the Scripture. They all refer to the exact same office. Some have suggested that the three words speak to different aspects of the pastoral ministry. Perhaps that's so, but it's difficult to see the distinction. They are all scriptural terms designated for those who lead believers in the local church. And again, read the passages specified and the uh, notice the language used, and uh, it provides for a very, very good study. Oh, and one more thing. I've written a rather comprehensive article on the office of Pastor Bishop Elder. You'll find it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or there's a link at the bottom of the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton. 